The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hello there, Bryce. Um, I wonder if you could find time to uh, illustrate to the board here this little hitch we have on your blippets. Put simply, the human body has millions of nerve endings. Each carries an electrical charge, individually very tiny, but in combination surprisingly large. Normally people burn it off, but in inactive people it just builds up. Now, because I designed Blipverts to compress 30 seconds of advertising information into three seconds, it appears the brain violently stimulates these nerve endings simultaneously. In some subjects, it causes a short circuit. Some particularly slothful, perpetual viewers literally explode. Simple as that. Now look here, the only people who are that inactive are pensioners, the sick, or the unemployed. There's probably no connection with blipverts. But good heavens, isolated instances of this phenomenon have occurred throughout history. People do sort of blow up, spontaneously combust, you know. No, I don't. We need some more informed opinion on the matter. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, June 20, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughan. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and once again, welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us on the show if you want to join in on the conversation. Or as always, email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today on the show, I'm going to try and convince you why I'm such an honest guy, and you can trust me, Robert. That's what I'm going to try and convince you of. Well, I'll hear it when I believe it. Yeah, okay. Believe it when you believe it. Believe okay, believe that, when you hear it. That's very interesting right there. <laughs> also want to talk about the language of morality, something I saw in the... National Post last week and uh, got me going on my whole theme for the second half of the show. What about you? What do you do in this first half? Well, we heard in the introduction there a thing about Blipferts from that old ladies movie uh, Max Headroom, and I'm, I'm going to oh, I review... It. Been a blip. <laughs> uh, I'm going to review a modern day equivalent to the Blipfert that almost made my brain explode. Oh no. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I had the misfortune to view a controversial bit of fiction masquerading as a documentary. Gasland was released in 2010 and garnered only $49,428 at the box office. The film was produced, written, narrated, and filmed by Josh Fox and attempted to scare the country into believing that hydraulic fracturing of shale, nicknamed fracking, was a cause of environmental concern. I don't think it has anything to do with that Battlestar Galactica. I was going to ask. I was going to ask. Is that where they got the word from? <laughs> Fracking environmentalists. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't know. It made a good curse word. It was very. It, it did. Was, it was a very good television <laughs> curse word. It was. Yeah. yeah. Now I take issue with Gasland, the uh, film, on two fronts: its content and the style with which Fox chose to deliver his message of fear and hatred. For me. A videographer in my spare time, as you know, yeah, Mr. Bob. Director, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> director, yeah. yeah. Uh, the filming and editing techniques were of more interest to me than the content. However, both were equally dreadful, and both were designed to fool the viewer. 
But before I begin on criticizing Fox's message, I should really describe what fracking is. Now, I don't consider myself an expert on fracking. And what information that I know, I get from the Internet, much like anybody else, or from reading the paper, or from films like Gasland and Frack Nation. So I'm just taking this uh, basically from the Internet and Wikipedia, just for uh, an introduction on mm. that process. Fracking is the fracturing of otherwise impenetrable rock by the injection of liquid under pressure. It's as simple as that. The technique has been used by the oil and gas industry since 1947, but only recently new techniques in drilling horizontally have given the method of natural gas extraction new life. Whereas before, a wellhead had to be placed directly above a gas bed, resulting in literally millions of wells dotting the landscape of the planet, now... With horizontal drilling, a single wellhead could reach a much broader area and there, thereby reducing the environmental footprint of drilling. The process itself requires a drilling of a, a well about a mile underground, far below any aquifer, then drilling horizontally from that point in many directions. A liquid chemical mixture is then pumped into the well, fracturing the natural gas-bearing shale, and the gas is then brought back to the surface for our use. Fox's film purports that fracking causes many adverse effects. To list a few, polluted groundwater and drinking water, cancer and other adverse health effects from polluted groundwater, property damage, earthquakes, explosion and fires in people's homes from methane in their water wells. And these effects, Fox contends, are aided and abetted by crony politicians in league with that evil corporate America. Now, in direct response to Josh Fox's Gasland, Irish journalist Phelan McAleer investigated the claims of Fox, retracing his footsteps and exposing the inaccuracies and deliberate deceptions of Gasland in an actual documentary called Frack Nation. Now, where Fox showed a man setting his drinking water on fire and making it appear that it was due to fracking, McAleer interviewed many other people from the same area who testified that methane in the groundwater was natural and documented long before any drilling had occurred. Fox apparently knew this, but deliberately left that out of his so-called documentary, calling it irrelevant. Where Fox drones on, and I literally mean drones, you'll have a listen later on, about oh, joy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> About over 569 chemicals being pumped into the ground, McAleer consults renowned scientists to dismiss such claims as scare tactics since even your morning cup of coffee contains as many chemicals. Where Fox interviews people who claim polluted well water, McAleer returns to these same people to have the water tested only to find it perfectly drinkable. And when the EPA the Environmental Protection Agency down in the States finds the same results, the farmer in question actually throws a tantrum when he gets the supposed good news that his <laughs> well is free from contaminants. McAleer also interviews experts in the field who reveal that the vertical depth separation between drinking water aquifers and reservoir targets for gas production is several thousand feet of impermeable rock and it cannot possibly pollute the aquifer where Fox quotes sources whose accolades are tumorous to mention, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I got quite serious. He doesn't even do it. Oh, 
here's a here's a person well, who's actually two, two men's ring, two yeah. members so, Therefore, I won't. <laughs> yeah, and even though well, it's a very long documentary, and at least one source in Gasland we find later to be a woman who lied about her credentials. Macalair, on the other hand, goes to accredited universities to talk to bona fide PhDs, and does mention their credentials. And where Fox makes great drama about being rebuffed by the oil and gas companies for interviews, McAleer makes the same, albeit deliberately subdued, drama about being rebuffed by Josh Fox, trying to call him up saying, you know, I'm Phelan McAleer, can I talk to you about the click? (laughs) (laughs) Where Fox is apologized to and politely told that he can't do an interview with an oil executive, McAleer is threatened with being shot, harassed, and thrown out of Fox's venues, and a woman assaulted to the point of blood being drawn when her cell phone is ripped from her hand. And where Fox suggests that the oil and gas companies have been given carte blanche to pollute the environment and destroy people's private property, McAleer visits the corporate executives to find that they are so restricted by the thousands of government regulations that it can take up to three years to process an application to drill. And in a bit of drama, he uh, actually shows an executive sitting behind his desk when his secretary puts pile after pile of regulations in front of him, uh, basically blocking him out from the view of the camera. Yes. It's quite an effective demonstration of exactly how much the oil industry is regulated. Oh, interesting. That's another issue I'm taking a look at in the future, not today, but uh, the cost of regulation, which has been estimated just in general to be many times that of all the taxation combined. I wouldn't be surprised in the very least. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that regulation frightens people out of getting into ventures that they normally would have. And we have absolutely no idea how much better this world would be if it wasn't for all those massive regulations that not only make it onerous for an oil company or any other industry to do business, but for for people who would want to get into business, say, hey, I'm not even going to go there because that's just so much of a you task. Don't, you don't need a second boss. You want to be independent and run your own business. Most of the regulations often are about economic decisions that shouldn't even be the purview of government. A few are, the ones that are about environment, legitimately. But how many of those are? Did you well, even then, you know, regulations are not the proper mechanism, in my view, to deal with um, environmental concerns. The issue, as we'll learn later when we have here a little clip from Yaron Brook, the issue is private property well, clearly, rights. Clearly, but yeah. the government does own a lot of property. That's true. And so there's no other way for it to, you know, well, look sure, after e- that property. Even the government can take um, uh, actionable uh, Action in well, courts. A, as a private agent, in a yes. sense, that's how you're looking at it. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, not through regulation, and in other words, it's like a prior restraint. The only sure. prior restraint is the prior restraint to respect a person's private property. That's so if you polluted be. public property, then the government could see you as if it were a private owner. Exactly. Gotcha. Yes, okay. yes. Now, while most, uh, there are more con- contradictions in Gasland, easily refuted by Frack Nation, and in half the time. The most interesting one for me was the cinematic style of both films. And I'll leave that, um, that analysis for after the break, because what we're going to hear now, you haven't seen the movie Gasland, no, have you? Or no. Frack Nation? I haven't seen either of them. Okay. Well, I'd like to hear what your, your opinion is on, on the, just the tone and what's being said and how it's said in both of these uh, films. Uh, I, I hesitate to call Gasland a documentary, because it really isn't. A documentary is something that documents fact and truth. Uh, this doesn't. It is simply a film and pure now, fantasy. Now, are these both 
on the same page, both of these things, or is, is one a contradiction to the other? Or? Well, Frack Nation was uh, set up, uh, released this year by Fela McAleer in direct response to Gasland, which was fil- uh, produced in 2010. So this is going to be like point-counterpoint kind point, of Point-counterpoint. We'll hear first from Gasland, a couple of minutes, and then we'll hear from Frack Nation dealing basically with the same thing. So okay. let's, let's uh, have a listen to those clips. It was clear that something had gone terribly wrong in Dimmick. But there was something else. I kept hearing reports of a family, a family that could supposedly light their water on fire, a family who wasn't speaking to the press. I wondered why, and I wondered if I could talk my way in. They didn't want their faces to be on camera, so I ended up taking pictures of their feet. They did show me their water samples, however. They told me, Listen, I know you want to see us light our water on fire, but we can't do it right now. Basically, we've capped our water well. We no longer use it, and we're afraid to turn it on. If we turn it on, it's possible that it could explode or catch our house on fire. So even though it's a pretty spectacular thing, we can't do it for you. I could feel myself getting sucked in deeper and deeper and deeper. And then I got a phone call. Not going to do anything. Nobody cares because of the holy dollar that's rolling in. Yeah. And it's wrong. It's wrong. I don't care. You're taking a big risk yourself going around doing what you're doing. Money's not worth it. And I'm worried for my life. And I'm going to be honest with you. So. I went across the road to see if I could interview the people who called me. Or maybe just to say hi. I didn't get to say hi. But a man came to the door. He spoke to me hastily and he was nervous. He handed me a jar. I said, what's this? He said, it's bad stuff. I said, what do you mean bad stuff? He said, that's about as bad stuff as you can get. Take some. Find out what's in it. Apparently, they were buying this hack of me being a documentary filmmaker. I guess because you have a camera in your hand. You know what you're doing. So somebody thrusts a jar of contaminated something into your hand, and they say, hey, take this. Figure it out. I had an inkling of what this stuff was. I'd heard reports of oil and gas wastewater known as produced water, the water that comes back up out of the ground that's contaminated with the fracking fluids being dumped illegally onto fields and into streams. And I'd heard of workers who had chemical burns on their hands and faces. And here I was, being handed a jar of a mysterious yellowish, brownish liquid. I needed more information, so I called the number again. I mean, all the things that you said about that uh, the jar that you gave me, um, uh-huh. Just got me kind of curious. And you know, without any naming any names, I don't know anything about anything. But was that that was uh, being dumped out? Uh huh. In some place that it wasn't supposed to be, like a stream or a field or something. Yes. All right, and that and that's why it's important to find out what that what's in there. Yeah. All right, and and if I were to be able to analyze that, would would that you think that'd be a good thing? I was starting to compile a list of things that happened at Dimmick. Water trouble, health problems, hazardous explosive conditions inside the house, destruction of land, lack of confidence in state regulatory commissions, a feeling of having been deceived, a feeling of powerlessness, dead or sick animals, the difficulty of obtaining good information about gas drilling, and the idea that there's a cover-up taking place. In other words, a total loss of normal life. Who knows if they're right? I don't. It's all speculation.
I began to suspect that Craig Sartner's claims about contaminants, including weapons-grade uranium in his water, were greatly exaggerated, or maybe even false. Have you done independent testing yourself? Uh, we did way back, you know, maybe two years ago. Two years ago we did some testing. But, that, you know, I, I don't think we've done any testing since that. Independent, you know. And what did that show? Um, I can't remember what that showed. Uh, they, said, they said the test results weren't that bad, but I don't know if the guy was, was testing the water, you know, testing for the right things. I mean, can I get a sample of your water, take to Ireland? To yeah, I'll give, I'll give you a jug. I got jugs out in there. But the, the water now? Uh... I don't know what it looks like today. I mean, she said it wasn't looking as bad today. I mean, I got some, you know, it, it changes from day to day. One day it'll, it'll, it'll be clearer and no, the next day it won't. And Craig Sartner, who claims his water is muddy brown because of fracking, was only able to produce clear water when asked in front of a camera. It's not due to the drilling. There, there's always been methane in the water here. We grew up on the farm, on the house down here, and, you know, my grandfather drilled a well in 1945. The day he drilled the well, there was methane in it. I'll show you where the well is that was drilled in 45. What's that? That is the well. And do you still use it? Uh, the only thing we use it for is washing cars or water in the garden because it is so red with iron. It has methane too, but the methane don't hurt you is the iron turns everything red. This is the second well that we drilled in the 70s. And what's in that well? Methane, and iron, sulfur. We still use it. No problem. But what about the chemicals that are used in fracking? I needed to speak to an expert, so I went to the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Bruce Ames is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. Because of his research on the causes of cancer, Dr. Ames has won many awards, including the National Medal of Science, the Japan Prize, and the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. He is one of the most cited scientists in the world. This is the Gasland the film with Josh Fox, and this is what he says about chemicals and fracking and, and public health, I suppose. In order to frack, you need some fracking fluid, a mix of over 596 chemicals, from the unpronounceable to the unknown to the too well-known. The brew is full of corrosion inhibitors, gelants, drilling additives, biocides, shale control inhibitors, liquid breaker aids, viscosifiers, liquid gel concentrates, on the side of that frac fluid truck, it should say, just add water. Well, that's, you could say that about a cup of coffee with more justification. I mean, it doesn't tell you much. What would you say to people who saw Gasland and are scared by that figure of over 500 chemicals and, 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 the, and the scary names of the chemicals? Yeah, but it's only scary if you don't know anything. If I gave you all the long names of chemicals in cabbage that give cancer to rats in high levels. You could get scared, but there's really no danger in eating cabbage. So, Bob, your impression of those two uh, films? No, no danger in eating cabbage? He hasn't seen Gasland 2 yet, has he? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that first um, excerpt there ended with the words, it's all speculation. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't even qualify as speculation. And I wonder how something like this even got anybody's attention to get worried about, to even do a response to. This is what kills me about stuff like this. Um, speculation requires some kind of something in reality to, to relate to, right? Yes. Some kind of theory that has already been proven, some kind of thought that has preceded, if you want to put all those things together, and legitimately speculate. Um, we could speculate more rationally about flying saucers and UFOs than we could about what this guy was saying. Mm -hmm. And the idea that water's yellow-brown and all that stuff. Obviously, he's never lived on a farm. I grew up on a farm. We had a well. It was always weird colors. Mm. You ever gone to Florida? Taste the sulfur in the water? Everywhere? No. Right out of the taps? If you go to Disney World, they filter it, and then it's nice and clean and fresh. I've been to Disney but World. You, it looked great. <laughs> yeah, but if, you, but if you go the rest of Florida, even in Orlando, around, taste the water in the motels and stuff. It's mm. very, very sulfury. It's not, not harmful to you, I guess, but you can sure taste it. So you can see so, a, a degree of speculation and, and what Josh Fox well, is trying to do in Gasland. Eh? I wonder what, he's, what his motivation is. His motivation is not about finding the facts, obviously. What is his motivation? To me, he's the story, not the story he's trying to tell. Yes. Right? Yes. And that's, uh, that's the way it, these things always turn out. And that's the way I feel about most of the things we see in our scandals and politics, right? You know, even from Rob Ford, the people who are the story are the people who are attacking him. I want to know about them. They're the wing nuts. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You and I look at a story a little bit of a, uh, at an acute angle away from everybody else is looking at it. I think that the story is the story, in a sense. You know, you look at the people behind the story, mm -hmm. their motivations. That's the story. And that's why I'm about to say that despotic states and the left, and I'll put Josh Fox there, have always used video to propagandize their positions. From Lenny Riefenstahl to Josh Fox, we see the transformation and devolution of propaganda filmography or cinematography. Where In other words, they're not even good at it. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> oh, Lenny Riefenstahl was good at it. Yeah? Oh, my God. Have you, have you, seen, have you seen Triumph of the Will? No, not yet. A fascinating right. film, yeah. Uh, mind you, infamous <laughs> in that its portrayal of uh, Hitler and the Nazi Party, you know, was the was the purpose of the film. It was a masterpiece of cinematography. I encourage anybody just to have a look at it, just to see uh, a well shot documentary and that like that. But today we have Josh Fox attempt to woo the ignorant masses with Gasland. <laughs> it doesn't hold a, a candle, a lit candle, to Triumph of the Will. Gasland is a flurry of disconnected, often out of focus, and I mean that. A lot of the shots, were, half the film is out of focus, deliberately. Shaky images were rushed by at such a pace as to suggest chaos and turmoil. The narrative is equally disconnected, blurry, and chaotic. The audience is presented with out-of-context statements, unidentified speakers, disjointed fragments of sentences, and outright mistruths taken as fact. The video is edited and pieced together so frequently that people look like robots, jerking here and there. And to a trained eye, the shakiness of the images is not solely from a poorly held camera. The clips are deliberately made to induce vertigo using post-production techniques such as quick zooms and pans. I know, because I've, I've used techniques do, yeah, like that. Right. Yeah. Cinem ah, you're guilty of the same thing. No, 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 <laughs> I don't do quick zooms. As a matter of fact, I make every effort to make sure that a zoom or a pan is almost not detectable. Now, cinema verite, do you know, have you heard that term mm -hmm. before, Bob? Yeah, it's a technique used in most television shows today. It's, it was originally designed to make the audience unaware of the camera in a documentary or film by making it appear that you're actually part of the scene by imparting a slight motion to the camera, a little jerkiness to it. You can see the technique used subtly in shows like Castle or NCIS. But Fox, Fox's use of cinema verite 
ironically, is so over-the-top and amateurish that all the viewer can think about is how incompetent the cameraman is. The cameraman, by the way, was Fox, as was the writing, it. narration, and everything else. That, that term Except cin- editing. He didn't edit it. Cinema verite. That word verite, I'm talking about that in the next half hour. You wouldn't believe how important that is. Ah, it means truth. Yes. Yes. Um, the viewer is left a little nauseous, actually, from the camera effects. And I had to turn my head away from, from viewing this for a few times. Uh, it's, Just because you were getting nauseous? Yes, yeah. quite, quite I, literally. I know exactly the feeling. Yeah. Um, it, the fact that anybody could sit through the whole torturous ordeal to the end is, is amazing. As for the narration, Fox himself narrates in a bored, monotonous drone, sounding as if he's almost half asleep, bored, or even drunk at times. But the voice has just the right touch of arrogance and snobbery as if to suggest his knowledge is superior and should be taken matter-of-fact and without question. Didn't you get that sort of impression from listening to him, Bob? Well, it reminds me of so many people I've debated over the years on the left. Yes. I will leave them nameless for the time being. (laughs) (laughs) Left, right, and center, hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) In these interviews, fractions of sentences are thrown at you with video of Halliburton trucks and oil-covered oil Rig, uh, rig workers and Fox walking around in a gas mask playing a banjo. I'm not kidding you. In some strange attempt of his to convince you of wrongdoing, so called experts' views are often taken out of context and juxtaposed with images of brown water in jugs and pits of waste. Important fragments of sentences are repeated again and again, making me believe he thinks his target audience is so stupid as not to have heard the sentence in the first time. After a grueling one hour and 42 minutes, the viewer is left with no clear evidence on fracturing or its effects. He's left, rather, with a series of emotions, wonderment, rage, and frustration. But then it dawns on you. Truth and facts are not the intent of the filmmaker. Emotion is... To this extent, at least, Fox succeeds in duping the dim-witted who refuse to think critically about what they view, and the innocent who don't choose to find out more about the subject matter and, in their ignorance, trust the filmmaker and take him at his word. I'm reminded of the movie A Clockwork Orange, where the protagonist, a murderer, is forced by his prison warders to watch a series of grotesque and violent images while under the effect of nausea-inducing drugs in an attempt to form an association (laughs) between the feelings of retching with violence. And Josh Vox must have been a fan of Anthony Burgess because his attempt is to associate fracking with the feeling of wanting to puke. (laughs) <laughs> I'm absolutely serious about that. You actually do get a feeling of uh, vertigo and nausea when you watch this uh, film. Now, now you said early on that this that this documentary didn't really pull in much money, right? Forty nine thousand bucks at the box office. So, how did it have such a big effect? Obviously, a lot of people. Uh, I'm getting to that. Oh, okay, yeah. I was wondering. Now, but just uh, think of Frack Nation for a bit there. Uh, Frack Nation, when I saw mm-hmm. that, on the other hand, is a professionally produced, narrated, and filmed documentary. The camera is steady and in focus. Much like the narrative, it is clear and understandable presentation of the facts and ends with an uplifting editorial about just how much the world has benefited from the very industry Josh Fox is attempting to destroy. Now, but if Frack Nation were not enough to convince you that Gasland is overhyped, anti-corporate, anti-life, methane-producing claptrap, then this might. Gasland was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. It won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding... <laughs> I had to laugh at this. Outstanding Directing for Nonfiction Programming. It also won the following. 
Environmental Media Award for Best Documentary Feature, Sundance Film Festival Jury Prize Award, Big Sky Documentary Film Festival Artistic Vision Award, Thin Line Film Festival Audience Award, Yale Environmental Film Festival Grand Jury Prize, and Sarasota Film Festival Jury Special Jury Prize. It was nominated for Writers Guild Award for Best Documentary Screenplay, Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Cinematography for Nonfiction Programming. Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing for Nonfiction Programming and Primetime Emmy Award for Exceptional Merit in Nonfiction Programming. I was going to say that's okay to win those things because they give those awards for fiction, but they're actually giving them for nonfiction specifically exactly. here. Exactly. <laughs> and if you don't get my meaning by listing these awards, remember that Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> you know, you get what I'm saying? Awards are not always what they appear to be. They are the left congratulating the left. Josh Fox has been welcomed into the collective. Move over, Michael Moore, youth competition in the field of fictional documentary making. But now, you know, Bob, it remains for the high school teachers out there. Oh, goody. Yeah, to put aside all their Michael Moore films and now start to pump... Um, films from Josh Fox into the minds of the youth in the classrooms, and just Pump wait the gas you, into the land. Yeah, yeah, you just wait. Now they'll they'll have every all high school students will be coming home, or even elementary school students be coming home to their parents saying, "Oh, mom and dad, you know about fracking? It's killing us! It's killing us!" Now you know why. <laughs> no kidding. So is that it? Well, yeah, uh, we're going to end off here yeah. with a clip from Yaron Brook. Um, it's a video that I took um, when he was uh, in yeah, Toronto on May 6th. We've played from him before. And he basically sums up um, a little bit about oil and um, a solution to uh, pollution. Okay. There's no product in human history. And, and if you ever watch Alex Epstein on, on video, you, can, you, know, you get a whole elaboration of this. There's never been a product that has benefited human beings more than oil. There is no product in human history that has done more good for mankind than oil. Look at the number of products just in this room made from oil. All the plastics. Right? All the transportation around us. The electricity, maybe not oil, maybe it's natural gas, but it's a, it's a carbon, carbon fuel, right? And yet, you say that at an American university and they'll stone you to death. They'll boycott you. We, we've got universities now boycotting oil. Again, no product in human history has done more benefit for humankind, has improved the human environment more than oil. I challenge you to find one. Maybe. <laughs> Right? And this is the attitude. That says to me, they don't really care about human beings. And then when you tell them, oh, global warming, right? They, they talk about climate change. It's not global warming because they, they, they on that one too, so it's climate change. That's, a, that's the way to do it, right? You hedge yourself. Climate change, if it cools, it was your fault. If it warms, it was your fault. And if it stays the same, it's your fault. Right? <laughs> you say, okay, well, let's do nuclear. <clears throat> God forbid you choose nuclear. Nuclear is like clean, there's no carbon, it's wonderful for the environment, right? They won't even do that. And that reveals everything you need to know about them. They're not about solutions, they're not about human life, they're not about human progress, they're about destruction, limited, limiting our possibilities, limiting industry, and destroying. Now, what is the solution to whatever environmental problems really exist? Private property. Yeah. Private property. If you, if you sell the rivers, Nobody will pollute the rivers because it will be owned by somebody. You know, you can't drop your, you can't drop your, your garbage in my backyard. 
right? We've known that for like a thousand years. Common law has defined property rights as you can't drop your boat up. Well, let's apply that to the, to, the, to the lakes, to the rivers, to the oceans, to whatever we need to, to the air. It's just a matter of being innovative enough in terms of legal theory to, to, to find ways to attribute property rights to those characteristics or to defend property rights with regard to those characteristics. Not hard. It's doable. That's the solution to pollution, to real pollution, versus the mythology of pollution. Enter the Alderaan system. Governor Tarkin, I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. Charming to the last. You don't know how hard I found it signing the order to terminate your life. I'm surprised you had the courage to take the responsibility yourself. Princess Lear, before your execution, I would like you to be my guest at a ceremony that will make this battle station operational. No star system will dare oppose the Emperor now. The more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Not after we demonstrate the power of this station. In a way, you have determined the choice of the planet that will be destroyed first. Since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base, I have chosen to test this station's destructive power on your home planet of Alderaan. No, Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. You can't You will possibly... prefer another target, a military target? Then name the system. I grow tired of asking this, so it'll be the last time. Where is the rebel base? Dantooine. They're on Dantooine. There. You see, Lord Vader, she can be reasonable. Continue with the operation. You may fire when ready. What? You're far too trusty. Dantooine is too remote to make an effective demonstration, but don't worry. We will deal with your rebel friends soon enough. No. Commence primary ignition. Wow, if you can't trust Darth Vader, Robert... Just who can you trust? That wasn't Darth Vader. That was uh, well. He was. He was there. Didn't you hear him breathing? <laughs> it's true. He was standing over right. his shoulder. He was the boss there. Let's face it. You know, for that matter, can we even trust ourselves? Sometime. Uh, you know, I saw this interesting article in the National Post back in May, May twenty second, and it was reprinted from the New York Times, and the title of it was "How the Politics of I Replaced the Morality of We," and it was written by another Brooks, David Brooks on the words we use, and that's what he was talking about, no relationship to Aaron, no doubt. <laughs> um, now, he has a story to tell here, and what he sees is three major patterns that have occurred over the last um, half century or so. And here's what his story is, just going to get into it here. He says, I'd like to tell a story about the last half century, based on studies done with a Google-released database of 5.2 million books, published between 1,500 in 2008. The first element in this story is rising individualism. A study by Jean Twang, W. Keith Campbell, and Brittany Gentile found that uh, between 1960 and 2008, individualistic words and phrases increasingly overshadowed communal words and phrases. That is to say, over those 48 years, words and phrases such as personalized, self, 
stand out, unique. I come first, and I can do it myself were used more frequently. Communal words and phrases such as community, collective, tribe, share, united, band together, and common good receded. Now the second element of the story is demoralization. A study by Pellon and Selen Kesseber found that general moral terms such as virtue, decency, and conscience were used less frequently over the course of the 20th century. Words associated with moral excellence, such as honesty, patience, and compassion, were used much less frequently. The Kessebers identified 50 words associated with moral virtue and found that 74% were used less frequently as the century progressed. Certain types of virtues were especially hard hit. Usage of courage words, such as bravery and fortitude, fell by 66%. Usage of gratitude words, such as thankfulness and appreciation, dropped by 49%. Daniel Klein of George Mason University has conducted one of the broadest studies in the Google search engine. On the subject of individualization, he found that the word preferences was barely used until 1930, but usage has surged since. On the general subject of demoralization, he finds a long decline of usage in terms like faith, wisdom, ought, evil, and prudence and a sharp rise in what you might call social science terms like subjectivity, normative, psychology, and information. Klein adds the third element to our story, which he calls governmentalization. Words having to do with, exp uh, with experts have shown a steady rise, so have phrase like run the country, economic justice, nationalism, priorities, right wing and left wing. The implication is that politics and government have become more prevalent. So the story I'd like to tell is this, and this is still the author David Brooks talking. Over the past half century, society has become more individualistic. As it has become more individualistic, it has also become less morally aware. Because social and moral fabrics are inextricably linked, the atomization and demoralization of society have led to certain forms of social breakdown, which government has tried to address, sometimes successfully and often impotently. If this story, if true, should cause discomfort on the right and left. Conservatives sometimes argue that if we could just reduce government to the size it was, say, back in the 1950s, then America would be vibrant and free again. But the underlying sociology and moral culture is just not there anymore. Government could be smaller when the social fabric was more tightly knit, but small government will have different and more cataclysmic effects today when it is not. Liberals sometimes argue that our main problems come from the top, a self-dealing elite, the oligarchic bankers, but the evidence suggests that individualism and demoralization are also pervasive up and down society and may be even more pervasive at the bottom. Liberals also sometimes talk as if our problems are fundamentally economic and can be addressed politically through redistribution. But maybe the root of the problem is also cultural. The social and moral trends swamp the proposed redistributive remedies. Evidence from crew data sets like these are prone to confirmation bias. People see patterns they already believe in. Maybe I've done that here. But these gradual shifts in language reflect tectonic shakes in culture. We write less about community bonds and obligations because they're less central to our lives. And that's basically the whole, uh, whole, his whole argument there, Robert. Hmm. Now, 
there's kind of so much wrong with it from its headline to its conclusion that I didn't know really where to begin. I've been writing like mad of everything that I, I, I disagree I, with. I, in that I, thing. I, I was just watching you there. I mean, the headline itself, how the politics of I replace the morality of we. Well, all politics is we, and all morality is I. By definition, by politics definition, is me. Yes, <laughs> and by definition, morality is I. There's no collective morality. Um, Anyway, I just found it remarkable that the author of this essay, David Brooks, would draw the conclusions he did from the evidence he pre presented in his own essay. Because based on that same evidence, not looking anywhere else, just looking at what I heard in this, I arrived at the exact opposite conclusion, as I imagine you did too, didn't yep, you? Yep, I did. But then, he, you know, he sees things in patterns, which means by loose association, whereas the correct way to look at the pe perceived pattern is to investigate it at its roots. By strict adherence to correct definitions, factual associations and patterns, not just perceived ones. Aside from the conclusion, though, I found the rest of the observations quite um, interesting, as Commander Spock might say. Fascinating. Fascinating, yeah, it kind of was. But to conclude that society's become more individualistic because words like governmentalization, uh, what? That's a, that's a collective term and activity if I ever heard one, run the country, a term associated with central state planning and collectivism, Nationalism, I mean, how collective can you get? People seeing themselves as cogs in a group nation. Priorities, again, associated with central planning and collective rationing. That's what priorities is all about. Right-wing and left-wing, both labels about two opposing politically co left collectives. <laughs> it's all collective collectives. Well, these words prove we're moving more individualistic. I don't know what he means by that. As a matter of fact, we know what I, what I wrote down about this. When I read an, uh, a book that's over 100 years old, for example, an Arthur Conan Doyle or mm -hmm. Jules Verne or something like that, um, you're, you're struck by how polite the language is. Yeah. In other words, they didn't talk in those terms of I and me and all that. It was about we and us, but only as a matter of politeness, not necessarily because they were more or less that's individualistic. That's a very good ob observation. In fact, that's probably more, more to the point. Um, you know, I, I was just amazed that, that these words could be, you know, the thing is, too, on this show, we use these very words more than anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's not a sign, you know, of individualism. We're actually being against these words, like, that's what we're talking about. But you don't have to look far to understand, for example, why the use of courage words, such as bravery and fortitude, fell by 66%. Just ask 13-year-old Briar McLean, who's a Calgary student, rebuked uh, by his school, yes. Sir John A. Macdonald Jr. in Calgary, for stopping a knife-wielding bully in his class one day. According to a June 1st article in the National Post by Jen uh, Gerson titled, No Hero Zone, Briar prevented a knife-yielding bully who had his classmate in a headlock, during class time, I might add, from harming the other child. The school responded by calling his mother, Leo O'Donnell, informing her that her son was just... Had just uh, was, uh, just decided to play hero. Right? Miss mm -hmm. O'Donnell, now, now I'm quoting from the paper. Uh, Miss O'Donnell was politely informed the school did not condone heroics, she said. Instead, Breyer should have found a teacher to handle the situation. I asked, in the time it would have taken him to go get a teacher, could that kid's throat have been slit? She said yes, but that's besides the point. That, it, that is, we don't con condone heroics in our schools. Instead of getting a pat on the back for his bravery, and there's that rare word actually appearing in the National Post, Breyer was made to feel as if he had done something terribly wrong. The police were called. The team filed a statement, and his locker was searched. The incident's being investigated, and no one has been charged. Ms. O'Donnell said the bully had since been suspended, but interestingly, not criminally charged for pulling a knife on a, on a kid in a class. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? 
So there are no heroes in the teacher or in the police department either, maybe. I don't know. Sitting in their northwest Calgary home is Briar's mother. Younger brother played with Buzz Lightyear action figures. <laughs> Tell you something. Ms. O'Donnell said this isn't the first time her child's been in trouble for confronting bullies either. We used to get phone calls home from the elementary school saying Briar's been in a fight, but he was always defending someone, she said. He stuck for himself up for himself once with the bully one time, and it actually gave him heck for that too. He had a friend stick up for him in that situation, and I'm taking the two of them to Disneyland in two weeks, because if you stick up for my kid, I'm going to treat you right, she says. The mother says she understands the school's desire to keep students from getting hurt, but fears it's teaching the wrong lesson. Running away, tattling, usually make things worse. Students need to learn how to handle bullies on their own and how to help each other, she says. What are they teaching them? That when you go out into the workforce and someone's not being nice to you, you have to tattle to your boss? You're not going to get promoted too easily that way, she said. Most of the time, bullies back down when confronted, she added. Calgary Board of Education did not respond to a request for comment, end quote. And, um... Well, I don't know. I would say I have a comment at the Calgary Board of Education. The politics of we has replaced the morality of I. Mm, <laughs> okay. Excellent, Bob, yes. And uh, so coming up, telling the truth. I want to talk about this. So this, this fits into the, to the thing I just talked about. Are truth and honesty the same thing? And uh, it's a good question. But here first is some mid-century vocabulary as heard in our next scene from an episode of Perry Mason. You remember watch that? I do, yes which was broadcast during that very time in the mid-1900s, you know, talking about the 50s, I think, late 50s, early 60s, which was in the last millennium. Hard, hard to think of it that way now, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, just listen to the vocabulary and consider the relationship of the words we use to the prevailing morality of our culture. And we'll be back after this. In view of the lateness of the hour, court is adjourned until 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. I didn't hurt Mr. Fowler. I mean, I, I was in a bind. I'm no think, Mr. Mason. You told the truth, didn't you? Why, Bob always tells the truth. <laughs> Except maybe to his girlfriends. Listen, my girlfriend and your mother is waiting for us. Come on. Barry, I'll, I'll be calling you. That fundraising is moving right along. Come on, son. Dylan, how's your teenage vocabulary? Better than average, like... Uh... I'm tough, I'm cool, I'm too much. Well, what's your definition of a fink? told it would be all right to wait. Oh, sure. Uh, can I get you something? Some coffee or something? No, thank you. Mr. Mason, uh, after the way I fell up in the stand today, I guess you... I guess you don't think much of me. You told the truth. That's all you could do. I know my father doesn't think much of me lately. My buddy doesn't think much of me. What do you think of yourself? I don't think much of me either. I wish I was your age. My whole darn generation got a lousy deal. Pressure to get into school. Pressure to stay in. Pressure to make good. And no other generation has had to face problems? The four horsemen have been riding for a long time. Yeah, but we've got the bomb to worry about. You'll have to do better than that, Bob. 
Somewhere man has always lived in terror of something. If not the bomb, then the plague, aggression, or the elements. Oh, now go ahead. Tell me about, about truth, beauty, and honor. Oh, I've heard that song before. Well, I can tell you from my generation that you're wrong. You can't tell me one thing for your generation. It deserves a better spokesman, one who's strong, not weak, not spineless. Now, wait a minute. Your generation, like mine, will endure because the old verities you sneer at will prevail. Beauty and truth and honor. You're not capable of recognizing beauty or speaking truth or preserving honor. Mr. Mason? These past few days, I've... Oh, I don't know what I've been doing. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to do. I don't want to fight with my father, and I don't want to think of my friend. Then don't. No one's forcing you. Don't blame your father, and don't blame your friend. Blame yourself. It's your standards, your principles, your sense of right and wrong that are to blame, not theirs. This is your world, Bob. Why, thank you, Perry. <laughs> now that you've placed the whole world on my shoulders, am I now the new Atlas? <laughs> Don't shrug, Bob. Yeah. Excuse me while I go take a shrug, yeah. <laughs> you know, I found that amazing, an amazing clip there. It was almost something that you don't... It sounded like something Ayn Rand would... If the writing was so romantic. Yes. And, you know, he's dealing with the issue of social metaphysics. Here's this kid being torn back and forth between the values of his father and his friend, who he obviously has some respect for, etc., you know, and he has to think on his own. And, um... But he's a social metaphysician, you know. That, that's, that was the whole problem in that case. He, his own self-worth was based on the opinion of others and on the morality of others. And that's why he didn't want to fight with his father or think on his friend, as he called it. And, uh, you know, Perry says it's your standards, your principles, your sense of right and wrong that is at stake here. And that, that's what it's about. You know, those three words they talked about, uh, truth, beauty, and honor... I looked them up in the dictionary and I found some interesting commonalities between them. Um, this is just out of Funk and Wagnall's beauty. The quality of objects, sounds, ideas, etc. that please and gratify, as by their harmony, pattern, excellence, or truth. Okay? Truth, again, the state, or, this is the definition of truth. The state or character of being true in relation to being, knowledge, or speech. And two, conformity to fact or reality. And three, conformity to rule, standard, pattern, or ideal. And finally, steadfastness or fidelity. And honor means high regard, respect or esteem, a strong sense of what is right, a reputation for high standards of conduct. Now, it's interesting that he said that generations, all the generations will endure because the old verites, when we're talking about cinema verite just a while mm -hmm. ago, uh, you sneer at will prevail. Beauty is, you know, is recognizing beauty. Truth, speaking it. And honor, preserving it. And that word is another one we don't hear, verites. The quality of being correct or true. Or a true or established statement principle. A fact or truth. And he was making a statement there that I made, too, on the radio a couple days ago. Believe it or not, I got in a conversation with Andy Utman over on BK over this. Whether there are such things as honest people. And I said, absolutely, there are, because if our, our society wouldn't function without them, right? We're, we're reading about all this dishonesty in politics and stuff. Well, those are the dysfunctional parts of society, aren't they? I wonder if there's a relationship between those. But the commonality to all of these words I've been talking about 
which is for some reason never stated explicitly in another word that needs to be seen a little more, is the word reality. That's what every one of these words refers to, a connection to reality. That's what truth is. That's, that's the ultimate determinant, right? And it's the reality check. A fact is something that corresponds to reality because that's what makes it a fact, <laughs> right? A truth, which is a philosophical version of a fact, is a truth because it responds uh, to reality. Now, the whole issue of honesty, you know, honesty is not given to lying, cheating, stealing, etc., uh, not characterized by falsehood or intent to mislead, etc. Uh, another good one is performed or earned in a conscientious manner. And, of course, Ayn Rand said on honesty, she said, she said intellectual honesty consists in taking ideas seriously. Well, that explains our politicians right there, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Ideas? What ideas? We're here to get elected. <laughs> and that's as far as it goes. I hate to say it or make fun of it, but that's the truth of it. And uh, she says, to take ideas seriously mean, means that you intend to live by and to practice any idea that you accept as true. And intellectual honesty means knowing what you know, constantly expanding your knowledge, and never evading or failing to correct a contradiction. And she says, honesty is not a social duty. This sounds like Perry Mason talking. It's not a sa sacrifice for the sake of others, but the most profoundly selfish virtue that man can practice. His refusal to sacrifice the reality of his own existence to the deluded consciousness of others. That's exactly the point that Perry Mason was making to the other Bob. <laughs> okay? Now, uh, you know, I was on this show with Andy Uten, and we were talking about being honest, and, and he's sort of asking the question, is, is there anybody left who's totally honest? Is there such a person? Can I look in the mirror, he asks me, right, and say I'm honest? And I said, yeah, I have no problem with that. Isn't everyone tempted to lie? And, and I'm thinking, holy cow, I can't think about lying. I would be a terrible liar. I mean, I've got a terrible memory to begin with, and just the whole idea, you know. I mean, lying... It's, it's, you have to tell the truth. You know, I, this Bob here, by the way, always tells the truth. Or at least I shut up when I can't tell it or don't want to tell it. It's not only right, but it's the easiest thing to do. And with my crappy memory, remembering what's real and what's true is already difficult enough. I'd be short-circuiting my brain and, and I'd blow up. You know, it would blow up because of the maximum headroom would be exceeded. <laughs> right? And, and if I tried to remember all of the falsehoods and lies I'd have to keep track of and who I told what to and who I didn't tell what to and then keep track of all that from what is actually true and keep that in a separate compartment. I mean, I'm already confused and dysfunctional just thinking about thinking about it, right? And so some people live that kind of a life. And, and um, you know, lying, though, is not just about honesty. Sometimes lying is the honest thing to do, such as when Andy asked me, what would I do if I were hiding Jews in my home during World War II Nazi Germany? Would I lie about it? Of course I would. And uh, do you remember that scene in Firefly where the Firefly gang returns the stuff they stole? after having learned that they, what they stole was medicine desperately needed by that uh, isolated community of people. Mm -hmm. And then the sheriff, impressed that Mal returns with all of the stuff intact, instead of arresting him on the spot, compliments him on his moral honesty, right? He says something to the effect of, I'm going off the top of my head here, when a man comes into knowledge of how things are, well, then he has a choice. To which Mal responds, I don't believe he does. Right? Yeah. Which, of course, was a wonderful way of saying, yeah, he did have a choice, and that there was only one to make. And that was the right choice. 
And that's what many went their own ways. That's what made that show so wonderful. Mm -hmm. That those unexpected scenes, you thought, okay, all hell's going to break loose. And, huh, nothing happens. They both realized they were both moral guys, and they walked their own separate ways, right? (laughs) And it was such a great thing. You know, there's other things that get involved, too. I'm not going to get into all of this, but a lot of people accept false guilt over wrongs that aren't. You know that? Usually things about sex or lying about how you feel when somebody's asking you, how do you feel, how do you feel? And it's none of your damn business. Leave me alone, right? And and you you get these guilt feelings, um, you know, you, you, you keep quiet about a truth because it would serve no one to reveal it, you know. It could be in, about a past affair, you know, somebody's smoking pot or whatever, right? And you don't want to get it out there. Uh, or even complimenting people when maybe they don't deserve it, but you're being polite, as you say. Uh, these things build up on people, and they confuse them with real lying and the real hurting of, of uh, you know, trying to hurt people. So, you know, it all comes down to that. And, and there's also the law of identity. You have to remember who you're going to trust and to, to trust what. I trust uh, London Mayor Joe Fontana. I trust him to think and act like a liberal. And so far he hasn't let me down, <laughs> right? Yes. I trust politicians who promise us something for nothing to lack the very morals that would prohibit them from telling us that. <laughs> Why should I be surprised? So, anyways, trust me now. I'm not lying to you. We're out of time. And we have to take our leave for another week. So join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Who's that? Some fella Ellie found nosing around. Beaming with the rock so it'd be easier to tote. Here, fellas, from the Petroleum Company. What's a Petroleum? I don't know. He asked me if he could do some wildcatting down by the slough. I said, help yourself. We're glad to get rid of the critters. what he said? Just kind of laughed. The last on him, there ain't no wildcats down there at that slough. No, it's too full of oil. Oh. 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 What happened? Where am I? This here is the Clampett place. I'm Jed Clampett, my young and Ellie Mae, and Granny. Granny says you've been doing some wildcatting. There's no need to. Mr. Clampett, that swamp of yours is full of oil. I could have told you that. Well, my company would like to pump it out. Yeah, I'd like that too, but I just can't afford to have it done. 